genetic testing in Canada versus Australia. Uh, yeah, so my name's Emma. Um, I'm one of the assistant egg donor coordinators with For Helping Habit. Um, so I help with um, connecting egg donors to potential parents and making those matches uh, and doing intake as well, and then helping to guide everyone through those journeys together and making sure that there is a successful, positive experience for everyone involved. Um, and then outside of that, my background, I'm trained in genetics, so I have my master's in genetic counseling. So how does the role of a genetic counsellor differ between Australia and Canada? Yeah, so genetic counselling, I'd say between Canada and Australia is quite similar. We have pretty, a lot of similarities in terms of our healthcare policies and legalities and things like that. Genetic counselling in Australia, I think, has a little bit more of an emphasis on the kind of counselling and psychosocial side. Not that it's missing in Canada, but if we look at the states, for example, they have quite a larger emphasis on kind of the science and medical side. The counseling is also in there, but it's a little bit less of a focus, whereas Australia kind of swings the other way, and Canada kind of sits in this middle ground where um, I think there's a bit more of a focus on the medical side, um, but still has a lot of the counseling. So things like just in seeing the way that, you know, most appointments are kind of structured and even the time of appointments and things like that, like differs a little bit between countries, um, just those little nuanced differences. But overall, when we're looking at the role itself, um, it's pretty similar in terms of what we're doing. Okay, cool. That's a good answer. Can you describe any uh, notable differences in the like actual healthcare systems in the two countries and how they kind of impact on genetic counselling? Yeah, so I think probably the biggest one, so the Australian healthcare system follows both a public and a private healthcare system. So everyone has um, Medicare, which is basically like a public system for everyone. And then a lot of people also have private healthcare that they pay into. Um, and so it's basically, I believe, like a monthly or annual fee that you're paying for yourself and your family. Um, and that allows you to um, choose your own medical professionals, choose where you want to go. Um, a lot of medical professionals and hospitals will offer both private and public healthcare. Um, so it's kind of like an inclusive system, but if you can afford it, you can pay for um, faster service and more specific service in terms of where you want to go. Whereas Canada, if we're mostly just based in public health care, there is a private sector as well, but I don't think it is as widely used. And there's also, I believe, some legalities to do with medical professionals not being about allowed to be involved in both public and private at the same time, but I don't detail on that. Um, so I think in terms of genetic testing, um, I think, you know, having the public-private split has benefits. If you can afford it, you can get through lines a lot quicker. You can see people a lot faster. The wait times to see a genetic counselor, for example, if you were to go here in Vancouver to the medical genetics, 
and it's not something that's urgent, it's probably going to be like a year to two years. So really long wait times, and so that private sector kind of allows people to skip through it. You could also argue on the opposite side that it's not very equitable um, because people who can't afford it, you know, it's too bad. Um, so, pros and cons. Um, but yeah, I think maybe that's kind of the biggest difference there. A lot of genetic testing in general is, unless you have a specific reason, if there is like a condition in your family, or let's say you're pregnant and there's been like an abnormality shown, things like that, um, anything beyond those is seen a lot in private companies anyways. Um, because there is this hugely growing private sector of genetics where people want to know their personal health history and they'll pay to have this all done. Um, and that's accessible usually from any country. Are there any specific genetic conditions that are more prevalent in one country versus the other? Um, I would say it depends. It's hard to look at the countries of Australia versus Canada because beyond a couple hundred years ago, like most of our genetics are based in our ethnicities coming from other places. So if we're looking at you know, most people in Australia are based of you know, white European descent, um, a lot of people in Canada as well. And so the conditions that we see are pretty similar because it's just the same background that people are coming from. If you start to look at, so I guess I guess the better question is, is looking at people from, looking at communities and backgrounds from like further back. And so, you know, in Canada, there might be a higher prevalence of a particular condition, but it's probably because it's, you know, in people who are more likely to be in people who are from Asia, for example. Um, there's also like some very small communities that exist um, that have their own specific conditions that are highly associated. So there are is some communities in Quebec, um, and um, you know you can look at like Ashkenazi Jewish people, which there is quite a large population in Canada. Um, there are Indigenous people as well, where we see these pockets of um, communities that have higher prevalence of certain conditions. In them, um, and so that might be different between the countries. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I saw it would be more diverse. Yeah, if you looked at like a countries that are just from different yeah. areas of the globe, kind of thing. Like, yeah. So <laughs> usually, like when you're speaking with patients anyway, and we're collecting like a like a family history, we'll ask, okay, where is your background from? And if someone's like, well, I'm Canadian, we'll be like, okay, well. Can you go a little bit further back and like, you know, where were your grandparents from, your great grandparents? Because Canada is such a mishmash of everything yeah. um, that we don't really have like a distinct Canadian genetic code. Whereas, you know, if we go back and then see people out, okay, I'm of Mediterranean descent or, yeah. you know, I'm of like Eastern African descent, then we start seeing bigger differences. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. Can you describe any differences in the two countries' policies and regulations related to genetic counseling and testing? Yeah, so again, I think when it comes to 
like a lot of policies are developing kind of based on you know big ethical questions and so what is you know we have this technology how can we use it like what do we define as right or wrong and i think in that way again australia and canada are very similar countries in in kind of the moral codes that we follow um so a lot of that's similar um there are some different projects kind of going on there's a really cool initiative in australia it's like a hugely funded nationwide study that they're trying to implement um, reproductive genetic carrier screening as um, a medicare funded item and so basically allowing any couples who are thinking of um, having a child to have their carrier screening funded, which is really cool that they're doing that because as of right now, I know Canada doesn't fund that and um, Australia doesn't, but they're hoping to get it. They're basically doing all this research to prove the importance and to put it in place so that everyone can have access to it. Um, so that would be a neat difference there. Um, I'm trying to think otherwise. I, like, I think we just have kind of similar legalities when it comes to um you know things like sex selection for example in both countries it's not legal unless you have a specific reason like, a, it's like a condition females carry this in this family yeah. or whatever okay yeah there are differences like one of the interesting ones is kind of the differences in egg donation and you know the idea of like complete altruism in australia where um you know there's Donor because you cannot basically reimburse someone in any way. It has to be like a completely altruistic act. So um, that's a bit different there. And then they have different laws to do with um, like the identity of donors, which is really interesting. So all children have basically the right to know who their biological donor would have been. So at age 18, database and the child can find out you know the name of the person uh, could you share <laughs> a little bit more about that like um yeah do you know how does that registry work yeah so okay this is what i believe don't quote me 100 percent on this but i basically the idea is that every like we're thinking about autonomy and this principle of beneficence and basically doing well by the child, not just the parents. Um, and so from that, there's this idea that children have the right to know their personal background. And you know, it's important to be able to know our genetics because what if there's something you know, that could affect us that we wanna know about? Or even just you know, out of curiosity, it's really important to be able to know where you come from find who you're biologically related to. And so from that, uh, Australia has established, um, yeah, basically legalities where every child has the right to know that. And so I believe that it's, you know, through, but like through like government databases that every donor is like in the database and accounted for and they know who they donated to and they keep this information um, so that when the child wants to know that they can have that information released to them. Um, 
and for anyone to donate, they basically need to agree to this um, so that everyone is on the same page. Um, and I think it's really cool because it really is about you know the best interest of the child and you know our right to know who we're biologically related to. Um, and so I don't know why Canada doesn't have the same thing. I think maybe it could be just to do with like no, all of this technology and all the things that we can do is progressing really fast and it's important for policy to keep up with that but also sometimes it doesn't necessarily keep up as much as it should and I don't know I would just guess that there's a you know this issue but it hasn't been put at the forefront that we need to be solved yet yeah but I don't know <laughs> no, I think the UK has the same thing as Australia because my friend was like looking into egg donation and then was like, I don't know if I want to be on a registry, which is fair enough, but that yeah. was something that was then included in her decision making, right? Like, I guess, yeah, it's weird that Canada doesn't know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's really interesting. It's so, I mean, with all of this, like, there's just so much ethics involved in everything and it's so hard you're considering the input and well-being and autonomy of you know the person donating and the person or couple receiving as well as this unborn child who is going to live their life and be affected so you kind so of have to balance all of those things so i think really this the importance of this is highlighting the unborn child's autonomy and like their well-being which should be <laughs> well, it's interesting because Australia is the only country that has a registry where kids can apply and find out who their donor was. Because if you're adopted, you can apply and get your birth certificate, like your original birth certificate with birth mom on that. But if you're a donor conceived, there's nothing like that. Like it's, it says on your birth certificate, mom, dad, so you might never know unless you do a DNA test that your donor conceived. So Australia has a registry similar to the adoption system where you can go and apply and find out, okay, who was my donor and get access to that information. So it's tricky in the sense because I don't know if you would like how you would know to apply or maybe you do it by chance. Um, but you, you would go give them your legal name after 18 and they're going to say, okay, yeah, here's your records um, of being IVF conceived or not. Um, whereas anywhere else in the world, that's just kind of like foreign hidden information unless you do a, G a DNA test. Yeah, I, I, like, I'm literally just, maybe it was the agency or something that my friend went through, but she went like and had all the tests done and then they were like, when their kid is 18, they are going to have access to who See, you are. See, which is cool because maybe they're just doing like more informed consent, yeah. which we definitely like recommend because mm -hmm. people aren't told like you, you're, the way it's portrayed in the media and stuff, it's, it's hush hush, you can, uh, uh, sorry, donate and close the door and never think about it yeah. again. So I like if that's the case with your friend, like yeah. the agency would have, um, I guess, educated her a little bit more thorough because there's no such thing as a not admitting now with mm -hmm. DNA testing. Like the, that idea that you can close the door and never look back doesn't exist because you can go and buy a 23 me test or ancestry mm -hmm. and do these home DNA kits and investigate yourself. So that anonymity isn't possible 
Um, so I think it's unfair for agencies like ourselves to be able to tell people like, yeah, you can be anonymous because even if we don't have a registry like that in Canada, which I think would be great to have, at the end of the day, someone can do a deep home DNA test and then you're no longer anonymous. So I think that's maybe the route they were going mm -hmm. if they, or they could have an internal registry like we do here at HHH, but like globally or like legislation wise, Australia is the only country that has something like that to protect kids conceived through third party. Okay, so are there any specific resources or tools that are more readily available to genetic counsellors in one country versus the other? Australia, Canada, genetics in general, the cool thing about it is worldwide we can share a lot of tools. So things like large genetic databases where you can find you know, a ton of DNA from people all over the world and also like information on different genetic variants you know this variant has been seen four times and here's each of those cases and all the information on it so those kinds of things can be accessed throughout the world which is really cool um, just in the way that you know DNA is the same the same concept everywhere the same, you know that's we use the same math everywhere um, I think I think one thing that is interesting that uh, maybe is a bit different in terms of resources in support um, is supervision, which basically is, like, I kind of think of it as like, counseling for the genetic counselors. Um, so basically being able to meet with other genetic counselors um, and discuss you know, difficult cases you've had, you can workshop cases, you can talk about ethical dilemmas, you can share if you've had a really challenging you know, case earlier that week that has been sitting poorly with you and you want to talk about that and so supervision in Australia is something that's mandated all genetic counselors have to do a certain amount of hours of supervision um, which is really cool because it's basically like here's work side work time set aside for you to develop and also receive emotional support from other genetic counselors, um, usually ones who might be in other clinics who, you know, so are your peers, but doesn't have to necessarily be your, like, your immediate peers, which is really cool. Um, and in Canada, I know that some clinics implement it and, and use supervision uh, somewhat, but like there's not that same mandated supervision, which I think is really, really important for genetic counselors in general to make sure that, you know, we're also getting support because it is an emotionally taxing job. So that's one thing that is a bit different in Australia that I think Canada could work on implementing more. Um, and then a lot of, I mean, a lot of genetic companies, like the big genetic testing companies that are used, uh, tend to be accessible worldwide as well. So, you know, companies like Invite, for example, Canadian clinics use it, Australian clinics use it. Um, yeah, I don't really have anything interesting because they're pretty similar. <laughs> That's very good. Okay.
What advances in IVF genetic testing and counseling are you most excited for about the future? Um, I think a lot of it's really exciting. I think genetic testing in IVF, I think overall, like, so PGT, like pre-implantation genetic testing, I think will likely become more widespread. It's not only useful for you know, those families who have a specific condition that they're looking to rule out, but it also can be useful for you know, people who are of advanced maternal age and having a way to hopefully you know, shorten the time and the amount of, or the like, number of implantations and embryos that you're using, which I think can reduce the emotional burden for people. So the idea of that, you know, if someone is of an older age, usually more of their eggs have like abnormal chromosomes, and there's very few um, configurations of chromosomes that can be viable for pregnancy. And so, you know, if we know ahead of time which embryos will be viable and we're able to implant those, then we can cut directly to those and you know, save someone having to go through this process of implanting an embryo, waiting, being hopeful, being let down again. And so I think that will be maybe something that's more widespread and, and help with that emotional burden. I think, you know, testing for those specific conditions really, again, reduces, you know, time and emotional burden for those families who, um, you know, might have had to in the past wait until much later in pregnancy to make these decisions. Um, so I think that will be really huge. And then I also think um, increasing the use of reproductive genetic carrier screening will hopefully increase. And I think that as well, you know, is something that could be really important and really useful for couples. Um, Know, if if there's a condition where there you know it's going to have a really heartbreaking and severe outcome and maybe you know the pregnancy isn't going to carry to term or you know you're gonna have a child that passes away in the first year or something like that these are kind of the situations that can be avoided and kind of the, you know, the use of this testing for people I think there's a lot of fear out there when people hear about genetic testing in IVF. They're like, oh my god, designer babies, like, we're picking everyone to be exactly the way that we are. But that's not what's going on at all. And I think instead it's just important that people know that this testing is being used to, I don't know, create a, a hopeful and positive outcome for people and couples and families who are otherwise dealing with some of the worst heartbreak and sadness that you could deal with. So I think there's a lot of really positive things that might be coming. Thank you for sharing this information with us. It's been great talking to you. Thanks.